Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And uh, we are back with uh, some more poetic realism from the French cinema. We have (laughs) Port of Shadows from 1938 by uh, Marcel Carnet. But uh, before we... realism, yeah, there's a lot of that. Mm, uh, but before we get into the film, uh, how how you going? A uh, quarantine check-in? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Quarantine's nearly kind of it's, it's kind of loosening up now in Australia, at least. So step by step, we have good news, and we can we can have five people over as guests to a home. That's kind of that's kind of cool. Yeah, although I I have a feeling like we're gonna the easing of restrictions and just because it's, you know, humans suck. Uh, we're going to fuck it up and we're going to go back into lockdown pretty soon, I feel. <laughs> it's very pessimistic. Mm. Oh, I'm just trying to be a realist about it. <laughs> but on a... Poetic realist? Yeah. But on that note, uh, you're going to use that time to uh, move house. Yeah, so we'll take a break for a week. Uh, just because moving house is heaps of work. Not to mention and, doing that uh, with, a, with a small baby as well. Like, I can't imagine how hectic that would be. Yeah. Yeah, with a six-month-old. So, I don't know if I'm going to ever have time to watch a movie yeah. <laughs> in the next week. So, we'll just take a quick break. Yeah, Fellini can and, take a backseat um, back for a week a and we'll be back a fortnight. But we just yeah. figured we'll get that out of the way at the beginning of the episode. But, uh, should we jump into it? Should we talk about some more lovely uh, John Jebbine films? Of course, we should. Did you want to do a synopsis uh, for yeah, Port of Shadows? I, I can indeed. I have the Criterion website up. Uh, so the synopsis is, Down a foggy, desolate road to the port city of Le Havre travels Jean, Jean Jabin, an army deserter looking for another chance to make good on life. Fate, however, has a different plan for him, as acts of both revenge and kindness render him front-page news. Also starring the blue-eyed phenomenon Michelle Morgan in her first major role and the menacing Michelle Simon, Port of Shadows starkly portrays an underworld of lonely souls wrestling with their own destinies. Based on the novel by Pierre Marc... Pierre Mac Orlan, the inimitable team of director Marcel Carnet and writer Jacques Prevert delivers a quintessential example of poetic realism and a classic film from the golden age of French cinema. Yeah, well, those two also did uh, Children of Paradise. Yes. Director and writer. Yeah. Um, which we've seen as well. I think number 140 something, 141 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so about 100 films ago. Collection. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't remember it. I remember enjoying it, I think, but mm. I it's a long time ago I, I watched that. <laughs> but, yeah, I was... um. We're kind of getting very used to Jean Jabin at this point. Yeah, all him of in Jean Renoir's... Yeah, he's just popping up everywhere. Uh, he, we, you know, we just saw him in the lower depths. Yeah, we, we'd had a few of him in the past, you know, with um, uh, obviously Grand Illusion, Pepe Lamoco, and things. But now all of a sudden, we've had him like three of the last ten films we've done. So, yeah, I'm kind of building quite an appreciation of him. He's always he... been a great actor to me, but now he seems to be uh, one of the best actors. Yeah, time, it seems. as I keep saying every time he pops up, just effortless charisma. 
the second he's on screen, you are hooked in and you want to know where he's come from, what he's doing, where, like, you know, where he's going. I'm interested. Yeah, he, he's he's quite incredible in that he has the ability to be an every man, but at the same time, he can be mysterious if he wants to. And he also has a kind of very hardened um, exterior, but can be quite tender as well. So, I mean, this is why he's in all of these kinds of films. That I mean, yeah. I guess like film noir-esque this film is. Uh, Very much so, 1940s and 50s is film noir. So, I, they, is it right saying that... So, if, if this is... This is 1938. Um, feels very much like a film noir, although it's also poetic realism part of that movement. Um, so, film noir is kind of becoming a thing at this stage, or are these... Just this is a kind of the genre has just emerged at this point. Well, doing a little bit of research, um, I saw uh, film critic Charles O'Brien um, said that the film would be uh, would go on to be called one of the first film noirs by critics. So it kind of really okay. started to crack open the filmic elements that create a noir and establishing those on top of the poetic realism to essentially help build this new genre. And I think it also yeah, helps... Well, I mean, it's a crime drama as well, so... Yeah, and, and you know, being That's, based off that, of that a, pulpy novel and things kind of helps with that, so... Yeah. And we also saw Pepe Le Moco, which also stars Sean Jobin, and that's uh, made a year prior. Yeah. Another crime drama, so this is... Yeah, this is like the first of the film noirs coming out in, in French cinema. Mm. But I think um, Carnet really nails it with this one in terms of establishing the kind of styles of noir with the, the lighting and the camera work and everything and the just general atmosphere they're able to create with this film. Yeah, it, I, I kind of... That's the first thing I uh, fell in love with with this movie was this, the tone. It's got... Especially when John, uh, you know, he's a, he's a deserter of the army. He finds himself at this town and he goes into a, a tavern and it has this really great sense of almost like a purgatory you know it's not quite real i mean this is like poetic realism so it's kind of stylized anyway um but it has this sensation of everybody's almost like stuck there yeah, and it's oh, yeah. ghostly and yeah it's like this little shanty shack on the edge of the water surrounded by fog and you just don't know what kind of world you're entering when you go in there and then it's kind of disparate souls kind of all like at this beautiful crossroads and you know Having it being set in La Havre, which is, you know, obviously a port town, kind of adds to the whole transient nature of everyone that's there. It doesn't feel like it is a permanent for anyone, really. Or if it yeah. has become a permanent for someone, it's not good. Yeah, people, are, whoever's staying there is, is kind of... Toxic. They, they're kind of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're growing. They're growing into the place and becoming part of this uneasy space. Yeah, I mean, prime examples are obviously uh, Isabelle and Lucien, but then you've also got the uh, the local drunk as well, who goes and steals his two liters of booze to sell every day, and you know, it's just sort of he's ingrained in there. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh... Not just that, but it's also the way. I think just kind of on that note of the town kind of acting as this kind of odd, ethereal kind of crossroads place. I mean, obviously, in real life, La Havre is a massive, bustling port town, but the way that 
they've constructed it for this film is, I mean, obviously they've used some kind of documentary second unit footage of actually shooting ports, but all of the actual filming stuff was done on sound stages and sets. And so he purposely did it, uh, you know, forced perspective, matte paintings and stuff to make it look like these streets just stretch on forever. And, but there only ever seems to be about 20 people there. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a like, very isolating experience. It, it reminded me of like what we, some of the stuff you'd go on to see in like Westerns later on, you know, American Westerns and things, the whole, the, the ghost town idea of there's just something off putting and weird about the architecture of this place and the lack of bodies. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's a lawlessness right. as well to it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, really, there's no, there's really no law everybody's more or less doing what they want mm. uh, without any consequences. And it's, I mean, it's, it's like all the characters are kind of self-policing each other. Mm. They've got their own kind of brand of justice, which is, it's another kind of film noir-esque uh, quality. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think why O'Brien kind of pinpoints this one is like one of the first to really nail the noir is You've got essentially that drifter kind of chip on his shoulder, doesn't need help help from anyone protagonist that you would, you know, Jean Chabin, that would later go on to be perfected by people like Humphrey Bogart and Clint Eastwood and stuff, like, you know, this this larger-than-life kind of just effortlessly cool figure. And then you've got the blonde femme fatale character there, as well as, you know, as we've said, it's the rival gang, the lawlessness, and it is that sense of drifting. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, it's it's got a romantic quality too that sets it apart from film noir. You know, usually you get you get your cool character that's, you know, like your atypical kind of Han Solo, you know, he's the anti-hero uh, and he's... he's he likes women, but he likes to play with them more than he really likes them. Do you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. Yeah. John in this in this film, John Jabin's character, John, um, also pushes quite a, a tender, loving side to himself as well. So, mm. um, I'm just going to point out at this point uh, to listeners, uh, unfortunately, one of my neighbours is doing a lot of renovation today. And they have been since 6am, it's really pissing me off. Um, so if you hear, like, hammering and drilling in the background, I'm sorry, that's what that is. Um, but I'm enjoying our conversation, so we're just going to power on through it. So, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, so... I don't know what else to say, really, actually, because... <laughs> it's a kind of sim- It's a kind of simplistic film, in that it's not... It's yeah. not necessarily pushing any kind of agenda or message. It's just trying to be an experience and a you know a pulpy tale. Mm. Oh, that's totally uh, like one of my the first notes that I kind of wrote down was it's a tight little story and it moves at a really quick pace and just doesn't waste any of its time. It just knows what it's doing, what it's saying, and it gets there. Yes. <laughs> All right, we are back after taking a break. Um, you might have heard in the previous audio files uh, there was 
horrific drilling and smashing and hammering happening in the uh, unit next door to mine, and it just made it impossible to keep recording. Uh, it's something that's been going on every day now, from 6.30 in the morning. It's driving me fucking crazy. So we had to just kind of chill for a day or two. Yeah, we got like a Wayne's World transition going. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> but... In the meantime, from when we recorded that first sort of 10 to 15 minutes or whatever of the episode, restrictions have been kind of eased up here in Melbourne. And so for the first time in, God, nearly three months or something, Tom and I are in the same room podcasting together. Yay. Yay. (laughs) No longer, no more Zoom lag. Yeah, it's so much better. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So, we can uh, sit and have a cup of coffee together and just continue discussing Port of Shadows. Indeed. Uh, previously on the Criterion Quest, <laughs> Tom, uh, you'd said you kind of, we'd almost exhausted all of your notes, essentially. Yeah, well, as I was saying, it was a, it's a kind of simple, simple enough film. Yeah. And I think the, the charm in it is the, the acting and the, uh, that film noir style or proto film noir style. Mm. So it's all coming from a technical aspect that I was really enjoying. But yeah. beyond that, it's, there's, to me, not much more. I don't want to undersell it. No, no, but... because that's not necessarily a bad thing for a film to be simple, which was kind of where I wanted to now go with this, is because um, this isn't lately the... We've had a, one or two other, like, simple films. Um, like, the other one that jumps to mind is Stray Dog by Kurosawa. And I know you were kind of, like, expecting something bigger and something more to be going on with that um, than was presented and that kind of made you struggle a little bit in terms of like oh fuck it's just a simple popcorn movie yeah well i came in with expectations because it was uh, kurosawa yeah and i was presented with an early film of his that was it wasn't it hadn't met the epic standard that i'd i'd come to know yeah and so I'm, i'm curious like when now we encounter simple films like port of shadows um in amongst all these kind of heavy lofty Criterion films, how does that, how do you kind of react with that? Are you, are you kind of pleasantly surprised? Like, oh shit, this is a nice, easy one that I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I suppose. It's not, it's not a hard watch. Mm. And it's certainly, and I, I actually, I really enjoyed the film. So yeah. it's an easy one to sit down and enjoy the tone, mm. uh, enjoy the acting. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I really relish the um, opportunity when we get those films that it's like, oh, this is an amazingly made film. It's really fun to watch. And there's not much else going on. I can just enjoy it on a surface level. Yeah, but but even you know, Ikaru could be said that it's got some lofty themes, but it's it's easy to consume as well. Oh yeah, it takes you yeah. through it at a nice pace. Well, well I think most Kurosawa films are easy to consume. That's yeah. what makes them so good. Yeah, and but. so this, this is similar in that regard. Mm. Uh, it's it's definitely like way easier to consume and like you know it doesn't have the deeper grander ideas like um, Children of Paradise and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's yeah I, I just enjoyed being able to sit down and be like it's just a basic noir story, you know very heavily you can see elements that would later be used in like Casablanca and stuff and just be like yep I'm down with this. <laughs> I think crime drama is there's a, I think that's a reason why that genre is just so popular and it has been so popular for. Yeah. A century. It, it made me, um, you know, having a day or two in between the first recording session, 
kind of had me thinking back on some other films. And just for some reason, I just kept popping into my head when I was thinking about Port of Shadows was uh, Pick Up on South Street, yeah. the pick, uh, pickpocket movie. It's that similar kind of, this is just a super entertaining, simple story on a base level that's just nailing it. Mm, mm. <laughs> mm. Yes. <laughs> but um, one thing I thought would be kind of fun would be, um, you know, we keep saying this is a classic crime noir type film, to uh, go through the characters. All right. Um, starting off with... Oh, my God, what is his fucking name? <laughs> John? That's, that's John why... John Jabin? Yeah. Playing John? <laughs> that's why I keep forgetting it, because it's John Jabin as John. Yeah. 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 Um, this, I think... Like, I'd seen it written down that this is, like, ticks all the boxes for Jean Jabin and was just, like, this is what elevated him to the level of, like, movie star cool. Yeah. Like, made him the Steve McQueen or the Paul Newman of yeah. early French cinema. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's because... I think I, I just... I think I mentioned this previously in the, the previous recording. So I don't know whether you want to tidy this bit, this bit up, but I think it is because he can... He can deliver on being a relatable everyday man. He mm-hmm. can deliver on being a mysterious um, criminal or kind of uh, an outsider as well. Mm-hmm. And he can also give you... He can also be a romantic lead as well. Yeah. So it's pretty rare that you find an actor that can do all three of those things. And when you do get that, you get a superstar. You get like a you know, Brad Pitt or yeah. George Clooney or... But not just that, he's managing to do all three of those things within the one film yeah. here, yeah. <laughs> which is just like, God damn. Um, and I think it's so, so great, Marcel Kane's choice to not... There's no backstory needed. Like, we just, like, when we first ex- encounter him, it's like he stands in the middle of the road and puts a hand up, like, stop a truck, give me a lift... And you're like immediately like, okay, this guy's got some balls on him. Mm. And then there's no no need for the backstory. You get the idea. It instantly understand like, oh, he's running away from something. He's in a military uniform. Something's gone down. He's escaping. Doesn't want to talk about his past. Great. Yeah, it's nice that it's nice that his past you could tie to any war, it would seem. Mm. I mean, take put aside the fact that it's aesthetically it looks like it's set in Obviously, it's, it's the, the beginning period of that it was War. made. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the story itself can be pulled from any decade. I, I didn't so. even get the sense of like it, it didn't even necessarily have to be during a wartime. It could have just been in general. He was a military man, and something went wrong. Like it, it didn't have to be in combat or you know something to do with the war. It's just in general. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice setup to a crime drama. It, I mean, it sets you up so that the character is um, noble. At the best of times, but not necessarily a strong um, force of good at the worst of times. Classic anti-hero. Yeah. Mm. It, it's that thing of, like, he... When people are decent to him, he is good to people. But then you encounter some people like Zabel and Lucian and things who are just dicks. And so he's like, well, if you're a dick, I'm going to treat you like a dick. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not he's kind of would you call him an anti-hero or would you call him just you know he, he's the kind of that gray tone of good and bad that is really everybody in re- in reality. Yeah, I don't know actually. Like I I went I go for anti-hero because we know he's on the run from something, something in his past and the fact that we see him commit crime. 
a, a crime within the film and he is still essentially our hero, I guess. Yeah, okay. But, like, uh, uh, that. all that being said, the crime doesn't occur until the last sort of ten minutes of the film, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. So... He's, he's not set up... I mean, his character isn't built on that. That's a yeah. decision at the, towards the end of the film. Okay, this is a good... Like, um, Tom and I uh, lately started um, a new Dungeons & Dragons campaign because we're huge dorks. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to use uh, some D&D terminology here uh, with a simile. So, a similar kind of character, you would take uh, Yojimbo from the Kurosawa films. Um, Mifune there, where as a character who just wanders into towns and you know things happen towards him uh but he is a uh, chaotic neutral uh, chaotic good yeah i would call jean chaotic neutral okay yeah it, it's not quite that alignment of he's not evil he's not bad but he's not all the way good yeah that's right yeah but he's got some good and bad in him so he can yeah, swing so both ways that's depending why on the situation his alignment would be chaotic chaotic neutral yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I, I suppose that he is he is set up to be an anti-hero somewhat then. But it's also, it makes me wonder, it, like, you know, time and place of this film being made, it's the anti-hero wasn't really established as a trope, especially for crime dramas and noirs yet. That's, again, going back to why this film is hailed as, like, one of the beginnings of that genre, because it's establishing that character trope, and it's so great that it's Jean Jardin doing it, because mm. he's just crushes it. The aesthetic and when he finally shifts out from uh, the military uniform into the painter's clothes, you're like, oh yeah, now he's got that kind of look down with like the oversized jacket and thing. You're just like, yeah, that's that's the what we're going for now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, uh, what do you think about uh, the female lead, uh, Nelly? That's my one kind of. She's very. She's a very interesting character, but I don't think. Th- there's enough going on with her necessarily um, in terms of her performance, like she and like what she happens to her as a character. Like her character creates a lot of like pretty much all of the situations that ends up happening within the film, but it, it's because she is, not because of something she does. She, she's got that. I mean, she's seventeen in the film. The character's seventeen, uh, and. Things are happening. She's kind of stuck in the middle. Yeah. So, I think she is that that classic damsel in distress, which is a bit of a bummer. Yeah, but at the same time, it's nineteen thirty-eight. Yeah, I and, mean, you've got to give it that. And plus, <laughs> the film noir typically is they 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 too tend to be hyper masculine. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> and the woman is always either the victim or the yeah. crazy, or yeah. you know, it's all of that. Like, um. You know, and that's when you get actual ones that have standout female characters that actually do stand out from, you know, the crop of film noirs. But yeah, she she's one where I, I wished, like, especially with all the setup and, like, how she's introduced, where it's like the... You get the sense immediately, like, she's a strong, independent woman because she's alone by herself in the back room of this shack, like, early in the morning, like... It's a bar, yeah. essentially. At least she's run away from her godfather. Yeah, so you're like, okay, you've got agency and you've got, like, you know, there's something going on with you, but then it ends up kind of... And then, you know, obviously, all the stuff with uh, Zabel and Lucian and stuff being, like, incited because of her, but it would have been great if, like, you know, she had more going on, I guess. Well, the, the drive is... The, she is central to the plot. She's almost like the plot device yes. itself. Because yeah. 
you've got Sabelle, the, the godfather, who's interested in her, mm. despite being, you know, the father figure. Uh, you've got Lucian, who's the, the gangster, who's a piss-weak gangster, by the way. Oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll get into both of them soon. I, I've got notes. <laughs> and he's infatuated. So there's no... Like, she's almost like the MacGuffin, mm. in a sense. Um, in the crime... You know, in, like, the film noir crime dramas, you often have that MacGuffin that's, like, you know, it's, it's the stolen item or whatever... Or, you know, it is the fork in the road, the thing that's either causing him to stay or go or causing the conflict. It's, yeah. In this case, it's the lady. Yeah, and I think she does a wonderful performance with it, um, uh, Michelle Morgan. But um, I think it's a lot... It kind of fell into the whole... It's just her face. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, some actors, they just have a good face for film. Yeah, exactly. And especially with a noir where it's a lot of all you've got to do is stand in the shadows with a little that Captain Kirk lighting and <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Yeah. stare. And if you can nail that stare, everyone's going to be like, oh my lord. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, she, she's very good in the film, but it's I, I wish that there was a little bit more going on. Like, yeah, it's also one of those occasions where I would have liked a happy ending. I, I would have really dug this movie if... You know, uh, Jean went off the boat at the end and went and grabbed her, killed Sabelle, and then they ran off together. I'd be like, fuck yeah, movie, happy ending, great. We got that in Lower Depths. Yes. Uh, which is kind of interesting because tonally and thematically that one should have had the the, the sad ending. Yeah. Whereas this one, yeah, you're right. Mm. But hey, it's, in it's the, the end, it's almost like it turned... It's that poetic realism coming back in. Yeah. <laughs> like... Yeah, but it's it's... It's almost like it's turning poetic realism against itself. Yeah. Because you're supposed to have that bleak ending with it. Mm. Usually. Usually. But um, but uh, let's get into Zabel and Lucian. Uh, those are the two, my two favourite characters in this whole film. <laughs> you liked Lucian? I did. I, I loved Lucian because it's like, it is the ultimate like playground bully character where it's like he talks a big game and he's like, you see, I run the streets here. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, this, um, uh, like after he's first initially humiliated by Jean, who, like, slaps the shit out of him, and then you see him start to cry. <laughs> yeah, that was my favourite scene of the film, I think, actually. It is this right. the most beautiful, like, <laughs> oh! You, like, Carnet is just instantly being like, oh, you, you understand this character superbly in that one instance of, like, oh, you're just a spoiled little brat. Yeah, cool. well, I, I, you know, because I've, I've watched a bunch of these kind of crime dramas and mm. the gangster's always pretty tough, right? Yeah. And and he talked to talk, to be honest, mm. as well, leading up to that point. And he's then driving he, around in the car, he's got the white suit, yeah. he's got his two cronies. He looked intimidating, and I yeah. was like, he's intimidating, he's a gangster in a film noir. He's going to be that stereotypical, like, the thug who runs the town. Well, I didn't expect him to start crying and i and he really sold it it was very good acting it was phenomenal and then next time we see him is at the carnival when he's like pushing in line and he's like i run this place man and you just like it's immediately deflated because we know who he is as a character and yeah. it just makes it fucking hilarious yeah it was good yeah he, he was he was standout second bester yeah so jean javin and and then also like the weird fake out that the film does where you know i think lucian is first introduced and you're like okay here's gonna be our antagonist for the film it's all gonna be about uh jean humiliated him and is stealing his girl so he's gonna get revenge on this drifter and you know but it's in a sort of weird fake out way it's like oh no zabel is our villain and he is the scummiest of the scum yeah yeah and that i loved i thought uh it was just amazing. His his 
he's that perfect <laughs> my note says Zabel is great he's the perfect level of slimy <laughs> there's something about his he's, he's it's his charisma yeah he's not he's like that that sluggy kind of fast talking is super engaging he's got, he's got a wit but yeah it, but it and it's charming. Yeah. But it's also rubbing people the wrong way constantly. It, it's disarming and it makes you yeah. on edge because you're like, there's something about you. You're really interesting and you can have a great turn of phrase, but you are dirt. He <laughs> looks like garbage too. Yeah. Which is amazing. It was, um, yeah, uh, Michelle Simon, uh, or Michelle Simon, sorry. He, his performance there is fucking amazing. Hmm. Um, and you know, his, he just gets worse and worse. And like by the end of the film, when it's that, you know, he he meets his end in the basement scene, I don't know why, but I had, it might be because I watched it recently, but David Lynch's Dune, like the big fucking like, like the Harkonnen guy. (laughs) I just watched Hellraiser and there's like one, there's one of the the monsters in that is similar to the Harkonnens as well. Mm, Just like sluggy, horrible, like... Mouth breathing, disgusting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it, it's and because he's so horrible, he makes Jean Jabin look so much better, and it makes you root for you know the the two of them escaping and getting her out of this situation and things. Mm. Mm. Then that's and that's turned on its head again with the the surprise. Mm. The the weasel Weasley Lucian decides that he's going to get the last. It, it's uh trying to think of like an analogous film that does that where they they turn the piss weak weaselly character into have give them the final word of the piece uh first one that's jumping to mind is american beauty yeah okay yeah like with chris cooper there at the end and stuff yeah Um, that's right i mean i'm jumping to that one because it's something where you think you're gonna have a happy ending um relative to that film and um that's, instead, that's perfect, uh, instead, uh, no, that's perfect because he, because he's his character is, he's acting tough the whole film, yes. and in the end, he's just this slobbering baby that can't hack anything because because our protagonist has revealed his true self mm. to him and to himself and the audience, and yeah. yeah, so, so it can create like a satisfying ending. I think it's it's at risk of creating a dissatisfying ending too. So it's it's on a kind of tightrope. Yeah, I think because I was enjoying the film so much on that simple entertainment level that when um, it didn't provide the happy ending, it kind of bummed me out. But then what ends up happening <laughs> is... You couldn't eat your popcorn? I couldn't eat my popcorn. But our final shot of the film is the dog. Yeah, that kind of... Yeah. Where it, it, like, that kind of s- s- like snapped something in my brain and I'm like, oh my God. I forgot about the dog. Yeah. So... It's the dog trying to... Yeah, that was sad. That, that was the, the true sad ending. Well, the the dog. Well, I didn't necessarily view it as a sad ending. I viewed it as like this, and this is where the kind of poetic realism stuff comes in again, where it's the dog is the inciting incident that essentially brings Jean Jabin into the town. With you know he he's hitchhiked in this van, and the dog runs across the road, and he makes the driver swerve, and where it's like, okay, he's our hero. He's you know purposely swerving a car, almost causing him to get into an accident, so that the dog doesn't die. And then throughout the rest of the film, the dog is following him around and it becomes his companion. After he dies, you then have Jean Jabin, uh, or you then have the dog racing back 
out along the highway back to that original spot. And I'm like, oh shit, time's a flat circle. (laughs) (laughs) This is all, this happened before, it's going to happen again. It's just life. Oh, I didn't pick up on that right, actually. Yeah, cool. Mm. It's like the dog runs back to be with Jean Jabin, sees that he's being shot, and is like, all right. The next companion. Let's go find the next, let's move on to the next story. (laughs) (laughs) Such a great little moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that that, uh, that was uh, traumatic. The dog part. Yeah. That part where the dog's like chained up in the um, on the boat and is like snaps his lead to run away. I'm like, oh, oh no. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah, but there's a there's a shot I think just before that of of Jean's bags, and I thought that was like a lovely, you know, you just go like where where, you know, what could have been his future with a dog would have mm. been limitless, and then. But instead, the uh, the ship's doctor now has a bunch more paint supplies, so he's golden. <laughs> That guy can keep making his art. So it is a happy ending, yeah. Yeah, it, it just not necessarily for our two leads. Like, life doesn't work out perfectly for them, but everyone, the world keeps turning and everyone's going to go back off onto mm. where they started and, you know, having had stuff happen, I guess. Well, I, I like that there's the full circle uh, repetition of, of, of cycles, mm. at least, because sometimes when I watch these films, you mention, you know, they don't click with me because there's not a grander theme to mm. to ruminate over. Well, I, I think it's not. It's just more that we've become accustomed to that, and when it's yeah, not, because I, I've watched Marvel movies and I'm like, I don't want to fucking think. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but it's so often with the Criterion films that you there is. It's all about context. Yeah. yeah. But I, I must admit that it's nice to just have a kind of crime drama. Where you can just eat your popcorn. Yeah, exactly, and brilliantly acted brilliantly constructed uh the cinematography is fucking rad yeah like, i think with every in any film noir you're going to find in criterion it's almost like a mute point to just to, to worry about talking about cinematography because the film like film noir is basically mm. film is like cinematography basically yeah see i'm but i'm highlighting it because like you know coming off of last week with all the renoirs where it was very unremarkable cinematography i'm like <laughs> Ugh. like it's nice to actually see someone move their camera for motivation <laughs> Because of something, like not, mm. not because it it looks pretty. <laughs> well, we're already halfway towards a look back, and uh, yeah, in in two weeks, and I already probably I already know what I'm gonna pick as the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where yeah, because this will be two forty five, I think, and so yeah, we got a bit, we got a bit, a couple a couple of weeks before the look back, but um. It's gonna be. I'm very excited for um, uh, the discussion on the best of, because after our next episode, it's. I think I've been teasing it. it it's like one, two, three in a row of just awesomeness and you know very uh, seminal films for me. Seeing it, a it was like a Sakura and Videodrome and Battle of Algiers. Battle of Algiers, yeah. Yeah, just those were three films I saw at you know certain points in my life, and I'm like, oh, the, all three of these mean a lot to me. Awesome. So, I'm very, very excited. Well, I haven't seen Slacker. I haven't seen Battle for LGs either, so... I think Slacker's gonna... It's not gonna be what you expect, so... so is it Linklater? Yeah, it's Linklater. Yeah. It is uh, really his first film. Yeah. He's... he's Yeah, I like him, um, mostly. Mostly. But he's always experimenting, and that's good. Yeah, well, that's it. Like, this is... This, I'm very intrigued for you to experience this one, but... I guess that probably brings us to the end of our Port of Shadows discussion. I, I haven't really got much else. Like like we said, simple film, so 
not much to really delve into, but check it out. It's it's really good. Well, we, we spoiled it already, if they hadn't seen it. They can still watch it. It's fine. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I watch videos online that, like, spoil movies that I haven't seen. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I'll... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Uh, unfortunately, it's out of print from Criterion, but if you're able to track down the DVD, it comes with a gallery of production and promotion, uh, production stills and promotional posters, new high-def transfer, uh, French theatrical trailer, as well as the booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. Yeah. But um, as Tom mentioned in the first part of our recording, we're going to skip... We're going to take a break next week so he can move house. That hectic, insanity, wonderful job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no apologies. That's, but, but, yeah, moving house is moving house. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we will be back in a fortnight's time with a film called E. Vitelloni. Have you heard of this film before? Uh, only in the fact that it's in Criterion and the fact that it is a Fellini film. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, an, uh, it's a 1953 Fellini comedy drama. I don't know. So we'll we'll check that out in a fortnight. But um, as usual, if you have any comments, queries, any of that stuff, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. Otherwise, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time. For this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time. <laughs>